The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This week on your favorite soap opera, it's time to talk about all the daytime drama on Soap Central Live with Dan J. Kroll. Get ready for the latest soap news, scoops, and recaps. Now, here's Dan. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Soap Central Live. I'm your host, Dan Kroll, reminding you that soaps are like a box of chocolates. You never know quite what you're going to get until you take a bite and see what's inside. I honestly have no idea what that means, but it was either make some sort of candy reference or dress up like a Cupid, because this is our Valentine's Day show. Yes, I know that it's a day late, but hey, it's better late than never. This year, though, we're going to take a new spin on our Valentine's show, because usually in the past what we've done is had some of your favorite soap couples appear on the show together to talk about what their couples are up to on screen and to get to know a little bit about them. But this year... We're taking a look at some classic love stories, both real and fictional. Coming up later in the show, daytime favorite and newlywed, Catherine Hickland will be here to talk about her recent wedding and how you can have a chance to see her in person. But up first, we're mixing up some fact and fiction, love and romance, and a little bit of behind-the-scenes information. One of the things that I like to do here on Soap Central Live, and I'm sure you know that by now, is to take a look at the inner workings of soaps, how they're put together, all of the working parts, how does it get from an idea to something that we see on screen. And I'm pleased today to have a member of the General Hospital writing team who has put together a play based on one of the best-known love stories. It's a tale of love, marriage, and infidelity set against a backdrop of war. If that sounds like your Valentine's Day... We may want to talk to you. That uh, would be a great idea for you to come on and talk about that on a future show. But today what I'm talking about is Dr. Zhivago. And my first guest, Scott Sickles, has an award-winning play called Lightning from Heaven that tells a story before the story. It's currently in a limited-run engagement in New York. So let's welcome Scott to Soap Central Live. Scott, thanks for dropping by today. My pleasure. So we obviously want to talk about some soap stuff as well. But before we get into that, let's find out... How you got interested in writing? What's the first thing that you wrote? Is it hanging on someone's refrigerator door? Um, I, I, I only know that I've actually always been writing. I actually remember writing, um, this is insanely precocious to say, but I remember writing stories in like elementary school and even reading them in front of the class. And I, I'm sure they were terrible. But, uh, but yeah, I, I do remember that. And, uh, I, the first, uh, this is totally a, in, inappropriate for, for the time. I believe I was in the fifth grade and I wrote my first, um, we'll call it a play for lack of a better word, but it was in fact a send up of The Exorcist, which had just aired. It made its broadcast premiere. I was 10. I don't know why I was allowed to watch it, but, um, but, and it was very interesting because, um, it's a, there's a lot of profanity in the film, and instead of bleeping it or dubbing it, they just cut it out, which made the movie even scarier because there were these long silences. And I ended up doing a like 10-minute spoof of it or something 
maybe a five-minute spoof of it for the, um, the the elementary school talent show, and uh, sadly, we never got it together, so it remains unproduced to this day. Oh, maybe you can take a look at it a couple of years later here and, and bring it back for the masses to see. Oh, yes, yes. If only I knew where it was. But, uh, <laughs> yes, it, it is somewhere in Pennsylvania, most likely uh, uh, yellowing away. <laughs> well, be on the lookout for it. Of course, when you when you least expect it, that's when it sort of pops up. But let's go from talking about writing plays for elementary school to when you decided that this was something that you could do for a living. When did you decide that writing was the path that you wanted to pursue professionally? Uh, I think it was uh, in college. I had taken um, uh, some intro to drama courses and uh, playwriting courses and. Um, uh, my instructor uh, was uh, very, very supportive. Um, uh, that was uh, uh, Kathleen George at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, and I, I went from there uh, to Carnegie Mellon, uh, where Arthur Jerome was uh, chiefly uh, my, my main instructor. And uh, I, they were all very encouraging, and especially at a program like CMU, they really, uh, they're not there to teach you a hobby. They're there to teach you how to... Um, to pursue this professionally, and that's um, you know right around the time when I guess I'm I decided to pursue this. I, I originally um, wanted to write movies, and I think a lot of us start up. You know, we really want to we want want to write screenplays. And I remember uh, I, I wrote um, with a friend of mine. I wrote a screenplay in high school, and it was handwritten on like note paper. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and, and that that is probably somewhere near the exorcist spoof and the storage space. But, um, yeah, the, um, yeah, I, I wanted to get into, uh, screenwriting and then, um, uh, the more I learned about screenwriting, the more I learned that it was, um, next to impossible to get that produced, especially if you are still in your late teens or early twenties. And, uh, I turned to playwriting and, uh, it, I found out that actually, there were people who were willing to produce my plays on a small scale in uh, in my hometown of Pittsburgh, and I actually became a uh, a producer of a small theater there. And uh, we did my plays, we did other people's plays, and uh, and um, it wasn't until I, um, I I moved to New York and really started um, trying to uh, break into the industry that I was able to uh, start trying out for uh, for television and uh, daytime. Well, just before we move on to talking about daytime, I'm wondering, you made it sound as though there were a lot of people who were supportive. I know that there are some folks who maybe don't consider writing to be a serious job. Was there anybody who gave you a hard time or told you that maybe you should, you know, go to the Bloomingdale's uh, accounting school or, or anything like that? Uh, well, well, um, when I told my mother that I had gotten into uh, a very highly competitive dramatic writing program, um, her first re- response was, Maybe you should try being a teacher, and I'm like, no, that's that's not that's not the correct response to that. But uh, but we, we we've discussed that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, most, most people. Um, I was so actively doing it that I don't think I had time to notice too many objections. Uh, and um, and uh, my dad was always, um, you know, he 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 always wanted me to have a fallback. He always thought I was uh, good at computers because he wasn't. But uh, I'm not. But uh, I know how to use one, and uh, that apparently, you know, made me look like a genius. But I, um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I actually started out um, 
studying for psychology and, and social work, uh, and uh, when I was an undergrad, that really the um, the theater bug took over, and I think I've just been kind of going nonstop with it ever since. Well, there's an obvious segue in there between The Exorcist and psychology and sociology yeah. to soaps. So how did you go from the elementary school to Carnegie Mellon to being part of our wonderful world of soaps? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's epic, actually. I'll try to be concise. The, um, uh, we, we were doing a play of mine actually at the uh, workshop about 10 years ago. The Workshop Theater Company is where uh, my play is currently going up in uh, Midtown Manhattan on 36th Street. And um, uh, we had done a play of mine, and uh, the director said, well, why, why don't you write for television? And I'm thinking, yeah, why don't I just do that? What a, what a great <laughs> idea. I had forgotten that that was an option. Now, and, then I, and then after that, I, I realized, wait a second, I, 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 were, I was a represented writer at the time, and I figured, you know what, why not pursue this? Because I had had a, um, a, an interview uh, at NBC, just a, sort of a get-to-know-you interview, um, uh, when Another World was still around, and so I, we decided to revisit this, and um, uh, I was, um, uh, ABC um, asked me to write a sample, and um, and this was in, I believe, 2001, and uh, they they were considering me for their writer development program, and uh, which is an ABC daytime thing, and it's an amazing program, uh, but uh, they needed me to write yet another uh, script to be considered because a year had passed, and the show had changed. I mean, a lot, a lot happens in a year on a soap, and I was writing all my children uh, samples at the time. And then um, eventually I got into the program uh, with um, uh, a number of uh, just uh, really good people, including um, Aida Kroll was in that program with me, uh, and Tom Castiello, uh, who are both uh, uh, fixtures in, in, in uh, daytime, or at least well-known daytime names. And uh, Billy Taggart-Ratcliffe was the, uh, what was the teacher, and she's written on every soap, uh, and, um, and it was an amazing experience, and then um, uh, that was in 2003, and then over the next few years, I wrote, um, I wrote a number of samples. I had a, uh, a little trial run at uh, One Life to Live, but it, it uh, didn't pan out, and then you know, it's daytime. Things change, uh, you know, regimes change, and the network uh, was always very supportive of me, and they... Um, uh, and folks at the show who were friends of mine encouraged me to try again, and I did. And then they brought me on as a as a trainee for a uh, writer development trainee for a year, and then uh, they put me on staff as a scriptwriter. And that is the the entire saga in um, in believe it or not, that is the concise version of it. <laughs> well, of course, I mentioned that you're currently working on General Hospital, but having been on One Life to Live, let's let's go back to our little Valentine's Day. Theme sure. here. What are some of your favorite One Life to Live couples? Um, hands down, my, my very favorite One Life to Live couple was Fish. Uh, it was Kyle and Fish because it really, the story really resonated with me. Uh, I was uh, I was actually uh, in the room during the early in the writers' room during the early stages of uh, developing that story, and uh, and I got to, to hear a lot of the discussion that was uh, behind it and a lot of the planning. And, uh, and even threw my two cents in one once in a while. But, uh, it, it was uh, just a really beautiful thing to, to watch and to really, um, look at the process when, you know, you want to get, um, you, you, you find a couple that you want to get together and especially couples who, uh, don't have a lot of backstory on the canvas. I think the first thing, uh, we, we seem to do is 
try to figure out their best obstacle. Because, mm. you know, when, you write, when you're writing, you know, 250, 260 hours of continuous drama in a year, you need to attenuate the stories a lot. You need to stretch it out. So, so it was really interesting to see how um, the first thing we did to get fish together was to, to find out how to keep them apart. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, Oliver got involved with Layla, and there was all this um, us with, uh, with, with Kyle, and it was a really just, um, it was such a beautiful story. Uh, and that really um, just uh, broke my heart, and it broke Brown. It really did, and, and I miss those guys. Um, and uh, my other uh, favorite couples uh, on the show, uh, I think um, uh, Dorian and David, of course. I, mm-hmm. I love writing. Uh, I just love writing Dorian and David because uh, cause you, could, you could just go nuts and say almost anything. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and, and they're also two really great improvisational actors, so they would, they would build upon um, you know, the foundations that you would lay for them. And, uh, and, and, um, and I was always a John and Natalie fan, um, a big Joe Lee fan. So, uh, so when, when we were getting that couple together again, uh, near the end there, that was really exciting. You mentioned for when they were developing the storyline for Kish, for Kyle and Fish, that you were there in the early stages development. That makes me wonder, uh, something that a lot of soap fans have asked over the years. How does something go from an idea where you're just pitching what sort of could happen to actually ending up on screen as something what you see. What is that whole writing process, or what can you tell us about that process? Um, let's see. What I can tell you is um, uh, the, the best way for me to describe that process is um, when, when you see the opening credits uh, of uh, General Hospital um, or, or an ABC soap, you, you'll see written by, and it will have. You'll see three pages of of writer's credits and. I really have to honestly say, because um, fans are very supportive, and, and uh, sometimes they'll write and say, "Only you could have written that." And actually, there's there's a reason, you know, eight, eight, eight or nine people are credited for writing an episode because uh, you know, the first name you see is, is the head writer, who is, uh, you know, the brilliant, absolutely stunning Ron Carlovati. And um, and I, you know, just just from my perspective and what I, what I was learning, um, the head writer has a really, you know a vision of where he wants the story to go. And what was really great about being in the writer's room is that it was, it was very flexible. It was fluid. We, you know, we were not tied down to, well, you know, this is what we need to, to do and this is what we need to build for. And if it's a bad idea, we're just going to go through with it anyway. You know, we, 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 it was always flexible and everyone was always trying to uh, find the best idea. And, um, and the uh, second page of uh, writer's credits um, where, where is the uh, the breakdown team, and they're the folks who work for the head writer to put together the uh, the plot, and they they do the um, impossible job of taking um, the, the you know the big idea, the big picture, and then breaking it down uh, to what happens next. Uh, they they figure out um, they they see where we've left off in the last episode that we wrote, and and uh, they they really um, do this. Uh, I mean, and it takes hours and hours, and it, it was astonishing to watch because uh, there's a lot of creativity and there's a lot of silence and there's a lot of talking uh, and throwing ideas around. And um, and you can spend an hour on uh, a story and then realize, oh, wait, that's not going to work, and just sort of wipe it off the whiteboard. Um, but, uh, but they really come up with, you know, what's going to happen um, day-to-day each, in each storyline in each episode, and they all kind of do that together. And then the, the breakdown writers um, 
individually break that, that those storylines down scene by scene. What's going to happen? You know, um, literally in each scene and each that with each character of of the episode, and then um, by the and you know, there's the whole process where it's um, looked at and noted, and then we um, the script the script writers get those the following week, and um, and um, I know that I you know. You know, read everything up to the episode that um, I'm writing, and sometimes you know the whole, you know, everything, the whole, the whole week that we're getting, and um, and then and then it's our job. What what the scriptwriters do is sort of take the breakdown, which is a prose version of the episode. It's all it's like a weekly exercise in adaptation, where <laughs> we're we're trying to turn this really interesting description that's almost a novella sometimes, and sometimes they're very detailed, sometimes they're very broad. And we really try to to make it our own while while um, fitting in fitting it in with everything else. It's because um, we're, we're kind of um, when people ask me about this, I say, yeah, I, you know, we're writing an episode that has to go seamlessly from the one before it and seamlessly into the one after it, and neither of those things have necessarily been written yet. <laughs> so uh, wow. we really have to pay attention to the breakdowns and uh, and the voices and watch the show and. Uh, and and just it's a it's a really vast process and and that's you know all that is still probably you know a, an oversimplification of it uh, but we have such really great minds at the at the general hospital and and, uh, and they, they were the same crew that I for the most part that I was working with at, um, at One Life to Live and it's just been um, uh, and it's so great and then after the scriptwriter uh, gets done with it um, the person who is credited with the scriptwriter is the editor the script editor and. Um, and they just, uh, uh, our script editor at um, uh, General Hospital is Elizabeth Cordy, and she has such an amazing knowledge and sense of the show, and it's just so supportive and really just uh, has, has been very encouraging. And, 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 and really, she, she, you know, she, she's what makes us look good. And, uh, and after that, it goes to production, and they make changes there, too, so it's a fluid, fluid process. But that's... Uh, that, that's how it goes from, okay, what are we going to do next to what you see on the air? Well, thank you for that, Scott, because I think that that's going to really help a lot of soap fans who are listening, maybe give them a, a better idea of how things go from an idea to being able to see them play it on the screen. And while we're right. still talking about the epic love stories, let's talk about Dr. Zhivago and what about sure. Dr. Zhivago inspired you to write Lightning from Heaven. Okay. Um, oh, well, before I go on to that, the first thing I want to say is that I, as a scriptwriter, have no say in the content of what goes on the air. <laughs> so while, while I appreciate uh, Ben's suggestions, there's nothing I can do about that. So I think it's important for people to know that. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you that, but I wanted to, to tiptoe around that. But I'm glad that you put that out there because certainly it does remind people that if you see someone on Twitter, uh, maybe pull back. They may not have yeah, the ability yeah. uh, to, to, to do anything. Well, yeah. What happens is that people will send, will, will send tweets to, to to Frank Valentini, to Ron Carlovati, and to me. And um, <laughs> you know, one of these things is not like the other. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and that would be me. And uh, yeah, and there's there's um, uh, I, I kind of go with it, and I express my own you know concerns and opinions from time to time. Uh, and and uh, but but yeah, I I, I I don't I don't work in the room where they throw out story ideas. It, it is not my de- my, my my duty. But, okay. but anyway, Dr. Zhivago, um, I, I was always a fan of the movie. I watched the movie for the first time when I was fairly young, and, and I, I end up, it's one of those movies where um, if it's on, um, I, I, if I'm flipping channels and it's on, I'll end up watching it to the very end. And, 
sometimes that's a little inconvenient because it'll be like 5.30 in the morning and I want to go to bed and, and we're only a half hour into it and it's a three hour movie so I know what I'm doing until 7.30. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's just a great, uh, uh, it's a great movie and a great love story and then, um, my, my dad, uh, um, Olga Ivanskaya, who was the uh, woman who was the alleged inspiration for Lara, the main rom- female romantic figure in, in Dr. Zhivago that Julie Christie played in the film, um, uh, she died in 1995. And my dad happened to read her obituary, cut it out, and give it to me because he knew I liked the movie. And I read read it, and it was a, a beautifully detailed um, uh, farewell to her that uh, talked about how she um, she and, and Boris Pasternak were together for uh, the better part of fourteen years, almost fourteen years, and that she had um, uh, he had uh, he was writing Doctor Zhivago during the early part of their relationship, the first ten years of their relationship, and then he had um, uh, in the middle of all that. Uh, because the uh, Soviet Union did not want him to finish the novel, they punished him by arresting a- and imprisoning her. Uh, and um, it, 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 uh, there, there are a number of theories I've come across in my uh, in my research about why you know he was you know why he was spared and she was not. Uh, but uh, they overcame a lot of adversity because when she got out of prison uh, the first time, they they. Uh, did everything they could to get the, the novel published, and it was never published in. Um, uh, it wasn't published in Russia while during his lifetime, or um, I, I think it was published. I think in maybe the late '80s, early '90s. I don't remember off the top of my head. But while they were together, um, it had to be published abroad, uh, they, huh. and um, he won the Nobel Prize for it and was forced to turn it down. And I don't feel like I'm giving away too many spoilers about the play, uh, just simply because this is all. Uh, really a matter of history that you can find on Wikipedia. Uh, but I, I just thought that their struggle was so poignant. And um, there, there's something about um, uh, looking at the lens of, uh, or lo- lo- looking at uh, this sort of personal um, struggle that happens in this incredibly uh, political totalitarian system uh, that, that really strikes you. And as, uh, as Americans, we don't really have to deal with that on any regular basis at all. There's McCarthyism. And uh, and I think that's the last time we really had to uh, face it in a severe way, although I think um, during um, the the, um, the second uh, Bush presidency, there were, there were a lot of celebrities being um, pressured to not express their opinions. Either you were with the government or you were against it. But I don't think anyone was actually going to prison over it for, um, for expressing their creative opinions. You could actually still protest and um but, but in the in the soviet union especially in the in, during stalin and even during prussia uh you really couldn't do that and then there uh you know uh, then there's even the recent news story about a, a, a certain musical group whose name i'm not sure i can say on the air who was uh held uh, you know in custody there it was really um you know uh, you, you have to wonder in a post uh, perestroika world how much has actually changed well, I see that we're almost out of time for this segment, but I quickly want to go back to, to mentioning something that you and I talked about before we came on air, is that you originally started your work on Lightning from Heaven back in 1999, but you set it aside for a little while and came back to it. What was the inspiration to coming back to it after about a decade or so? 
Um, I, I had actually, um, I mean, uh, uh, like we were talking before, um, it, it had a couple of productions in 99 and 2000, and it, and it won uh, a lovely award, the Julie Harris uh, West Coast Theater, or, or Beverly Hills Theater Guild Award, uh, which was a great honor. But um, uh, I was never quite satisfied with, um, with, with some of the aspects of the play, and I kept uh, having readings every two, three years to revisit it. And um, I kept getting stuck in the same place. And then, um, and then uh, when I had to, um, when I wanted to do another one, um, I, the director I had been um, working with was uh, no longer available. And, uh, and there was another director who had been wanting to work with me on, on projects. And we worked together on One X before. And we decided to tackle this together. And it was really uh, good to have a fresh perspective uh, on the material. And, uh, and you know, just working on it um, before, we, we really took it um, in really great directions uh, previously. And then we sort of deconstructed some aspects of it and, um, and just tore the play apart and put it back together this time. But it was really just getting new perspectives and, uh, and t- you know, having some time away from it uh, helps. And um, it, it really is, um, after a while, you look at a play, um, uh, at least I do, you know, once it's settled, all of a sudden it's like one, you know, 100-page or 120-page word. It's just this <laughs> one thing that, you, that everything is inexorably connected. And when you finally get someone who, or when you get someone who's there who can sort of take little bits and pieces of it, of it apart and, and sort of show you the cracks where you want to see them, um, then it starts to fall apart and then, you, then it, it becomes, it loosens the material up and you can really start taking things out and, and being very... Um, inspired uh and uh and uh, it's fun because this play is about um, the nature of inspiration about how this woman inspired this man and how their struggle inspired you know this novel and uh and other people and their struggle and this woman both inspired me to uh to write this play and lightning from heaven is running through it's saturday march 9th at the workshop theater in new york and yes, folks can it. go to workshoptheater.org for tickets. What I like, Scott, uh, is that tickets are starting at $18, which is a great deal anywhere, especially in New York. And I think that everybody should come out and, and check it out. Oh, thanks. Yes, please do. And I, actually, $18 is our top ticket price. So, yes. So it's, it's, it's uh, pretty cheap. We have, uh, we have uh, you know, special offers, too. So please check out the website. Scott, thank you so much for dropping by. Hopefully, we will have you on again in the future. I know that there's some more stuff coming in the pipeline. Hopefully, we'll have you back to talk about that, too. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Everybody, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be back on the other side of this commercial with Catherine Hicklin. Stay tuned. Soap Central Live. We'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Hey, soap fans, are you looking for the inside scoop on your favorite daytime drama series? For 15 years, soap fans have looked no further than soapcentral.com. Every day, soapcentral.com has comprehensive daily recaps of all the happenings on your favorite soap operas. Take a sneak peek ahead with the scoop for spoilers and previews or share your thoughts with soap fans from around the world on our bustling message boards. If you're looking for a little history or just looking to settle a bet with a friend, check out hundreds of character profiles and actor biographies. Now you'll be able to know who slept with who and who's come back from the dead the most times. 
plus exclusive interviews, red carpet coverage of the daytime Emmys, and much more. Whether you watch The Young and the Restless, General Hospital, All My Children, or any of the other soaps, SoapCentral.com will keep you tuning in tomorrow. When you look at something that's been designed, whether it's clothing, architecture, or a work of art, do you stop and wonder about the inspiration and thought process that went into the design? Tune in to Dishing the Dirt on Design with hosts Ann Asher and Eleanor Schrader-Shapa. We'll take the mystery out of the creation process, along with revealing the backstory from art to fashion to travel and so much more. Listen to Dishing the Dirt on Design every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. When you talk about the subject of bullying, it's not just the person being bullied who is dealing with complicated issues. It's also parents and teachers. Bullying has even taken a new turn with social networking, negative images, and even reality TV. Tune in to One Word Nation Radio with host Jessica Brookshire. We'll put the issue of bullying front and center, going beyond the classrooms and hallways of our schools to help empower and protect youth and their families. Listen every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com tuned in today with Soap Central Live starring Dan J. Kroll. Do you have a question, a comment, or you just want to dish? Please call in at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or drop a line to radio at soapcentral.com. Now, back to our stories. Hey everybody, welcome back to Soap Central Live. My next guest is a definite fan favorite and just just a ball of positive energy. She's been part of our soap family since her first appearance as Courtney Marshall on Texas, but she's been on Capital, Loving, The City, and of course, One Life to Live, where this year she has received a SoapCentral.com award nomination. But shh, don't tell anybody because the final ballot hasn't been formally announced. That comes up next week. So let's bring her back here. Catherine Hickland, welcome back to Soap Central Live. Oh my gosh, it's so good to be here. Happy Friday, everybody, TGIF. You know, Kat, it has been, It's you're here for our holiday shows, it seems. The last time you were here was April Fool's Day 2011. A whole lot has gone on in those almost two years, so I feel like we have to catch up. Yeah, uh, oh my gosh, that's true. I'm so here. What do you need to know? Oh my what do gosh. you want to know? You know, I talk, I, I will say this about myself. I am not afraid to say what I think. <laughs> that's not a bad <laughs> so I'm a good call-in guest, you know. Well, since let's let's loop back to our Valentine's Day uh, sort of theme here. It's our day after Valentine's Day, but you know the celebration will go on all week. You are a newlywed. Yes, I got married on December twenty second. I was a Christmas bride. Todd Fisher and I got married um, in Beverly Hills at his sister Carrie Fisher's house. We had such an awesome wedding. We really did. And I, you know, I only had two weeks to put it together and I had a lot of help from Carrie and a lot of help from uh, Todd's mom, Debbie Reynolds. They were both amazing because 
I um, had just come off my tour, and uh, so I, I only had two weeks to get it. I had no dress up till a week before. I mean, it was one of wow. those things where I just couldn't believe the wedding we actually ended up putting on, and I'm so grateful I didn't have any more time to think about it because, you know, some people have a year to plan a wedding, six months. <laughs> I would drive myself insane if I had that much time. Well, you did do a webcast of the wedding, and I'm, you know, I was watching along, and I kept wondering if somebody would jump up in the in the uh, audience and say they were going to stop the wedding, or if Hillary would <laughs> jump through. I mean, you know, I'm a soap fan. I expect an interruption at a wedding. I know, and we had so many problems with that with the um, internet, and you know, we did tape our wedding, and I'm editing it right now because I a lot of people wanted to see it, so I'm going to have that edited soon. But that's funny you should say that because you know Michael Knight, my former husband and very best friend in the world, was at our wedding, and I I remember you know I I walked up the aisle. <clears throat> my brother walked me up the aisle, and instead of our backs being to the congregation, we actually decided that we were going to face the congregation for the entire ceremony because what is that you're looking at the back? You know, it's more <laughs> interesting to see what's going on on the face. Maybe it's my soap opera background. I don't know, but we decided to go ahead and and face the audience for our for our um, ceremony. And uh, the funny thing is, is they had been really working on getting that the uh, goods up so that we could broadcast it live. Because first of all, my mom had had a stroke and she couldn't be at the wedding, so I wanted her to be able to be there via the internet. Second of all fans wanted to be there, and I wanted them to be there, and so that just made sense to me. Well, they were having so much, so many problems. Now, here I am locked in a bathroom. The wedding's supposed to start at 2. I'm a time, be on time freak, Dan. I mean, a freak about being on time, right? So I'm locked Eight. in the bathroom, and I'm, and the and 3 o'clock, now it's an hour late, and no one's telling me what's going on, and I'm texting people from inside the bathroom, because I don't want anyone to see me in my dress, and you know, oh gosh, it was just a comedy of errors, but I turned around once I got to the front of the, of the, when I got to the altar, which was a beautiful, it was a beautiful a flower arch, and um, I turned around, and the first person I noticed was Michael Knight sitting there, and I was like, I was, I was like, oh, I wanted to wait. Hi, Mikey. I hadn't seen him in a long time, and and it was just awesome to have him there. And and you know, we, we have a very unusual, you know, um, we had a great, we had a, we have a great friendship. It's incredible. Something. I mean, there's a lot of ideas that people have about relationships and what you should or shouldn't do. Do you have any advice for people who say that you can't keep, uh, you can't remain friends with people with whom maybe you've had a relationship with in the past? Is that well, a well? Sure, that's a great question. I mean, it is really a great question because here's the here's the rules on that. At, at least as far as I'm concerned, I mean, you know, I have my book, The Thirty Day Heartbreak Cure, and I have a lot of very strong ideas about relationships and how they work and why they work and why they don't work and when you should be friends and all that sort of thing. Um, first of all, I think you need to put time in between you if you had a bad, if, if there was, if it was a rough breakup or a rough divorce. You need a little time between you. Michael and I did not have that. We had a very loving, kind, um, and honorable divorce. And so we, we didn't, you know, there was no time lapse. We saw each other right away. We weren't mad at each other. It's a very unusual situation. I think I could coach just about anybody through a great breakup if they were willing to come to me. 
I've done it many times, but I mean, it, there is a certain way you have to behave, and both people have to do it, and there's the trick. Now, when should you become, when, you, when should you be friends? If someone treated you with dignity and with respect and love to the end, that is a great indicator that you may, may now not just end the relationship, but begin it again as friends. So the relationship mm. dynamics change. I'm not a fan of friends with benefits. I'm not a, fran- a fan of, of, you know, sleeping with your ex. I think that all that is um, just problematic, and it's, and it, it's making you unavailable. And I know a lot of people get addicted to their exes, you know, even if it wasn't good. But the only way you can really be friends with somebody is if they treated you and you treated them with kindness and respect, love and dignity, and then there's no, no, need, no reason you can't be friends, no reason you shouldn't be friends. And that's how I feel about that. You talk about respect and love, and I'm certain that you know that the fans have a lot of respect and love for you. We have some on the line who would like to chat with you, so we're going to take a call okay. from Ernest in Oregon. Ernest, welcome to Soap Central Live. Ernest, is this Ernest Dempsey? This is Ernest Dempsey. Hi, Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he's calling me Stevie because that was the character I played on Knight Rider for the three seasons. Yes. And yeah, if, so I just wanted to remember. tell everybody that. Now, I have never met Ernest Dempsey, but you see, I know Ernest Dempsey because of Facebook. Ernest has also interviewed me and, and wrote a beautiful article about me. But I know exactly what Ernest looks like, and I've never heard his voice until now. And I'm so happy to meet you, Ernest. It's, it's, it feels like a dream, Stevie. <laughs> well, well, it's real, just so you know. This is, this is reality. <laughs> All the way from Pakistan, by the way, from Pakistan to Oregon, and now calling you. So, um, Mike, uh, first of all, you were talking about your wedding. And if you remember, uh, on screen there was a wedding with Michael Knight, and in that episode you actually got shot. Yes. I got shot. I took a bullet for David Hasselhoff. Many people, (laughs) that that may be the stupidest thing I ever did, but, hey, it was good drama, right? So there you go. So I have two quick questions for you, Catherine. One is, um, back then, in the Night Rider days, you were White Bird, if you remember. Yeah, mm-hmm, that was the first episode. Yeah. So what are you now? Like, you were White Bird at that time. So right now on the show, what are you? Um, right now on which show? Um, right now, at this moment, when you're sitting there and you're, like, in, uh, in your life, I suppose. Yes, and I'm sitting in, in the edit in an edit bay right now because I'm editing some things. <laughs> what animal am I? Hmm. I'm pretty sure I'm starting to turn into a goose because you know I have a pet <laughs> goose, and uh, I I am not cool. kidding. I have started to morph into that animal because I I really am so crazy in love with that bird. It's re- I uh. hold it at night. I cuddle it at night. It's outside all day, but at night it comes in through the dog door and it eats <laughs> with me and you know sleeps in the house. And I'm pretty sure I've turned into mother goose. <laughs> well. Okay, my, my second question, quick question is that uh, the 30, you know, you wrote the 30 day hard, uh, heartbreak cure. Yeah. So do you have any advice for people who are afraid to enter a relationship because they fear that they will mess their lives up? All right, well, that's a, gosh, people always have the best questions about relationships. When we're afraid to get into a relationship, what that really says is that you're afraid of yourself because 
you don't trust your judgment. And, you know, that's a really um, an illuminating place to be because the second that you say, gosh, you know, I'm afraid to care or love or I'm afraid to get involved with somebody on a deep level, it's a really great moment in your life because it's the moment that you go, and I don't want to feel like this anymore. I want to be in charge of my life, of my emotional life. And so, therefore, I'm going to get to know myself so well and I am going to get to know why I'm afraid, and I'm going to change all of those things, and I'm going to make myself, you know, like foolproof, meaning you get to, in the 30-day heartbreak here, I talk about dangerous personalities and how to read people. And the reason that that's so important is because you can save yourself a lot of time if at the time you're dating somebody, say you're going out on your, you know how the first two, three, the first two weeks of dating, People are trying so hard to tell us about themselves, and we are just not listening. We are so busy being infatuated by the way they look or the way they seem or the way they sound that we miss all the twinkling row of red flags that are in front of us. So I just say get to know yourself, get to know your limits about how you feel, you know, what you're going to put up with, what you can do, what you won't do what you want in a relationship, and then learn how to read people. There are so many great books about it. And I know people say, oh, gee, that sounds like a lot of work. But it's not because it becomes second nature. When I meet people, I'm enjoying their company, and at the same time, I am reading them, their facial muscles, their body language. I'm, I'm hearing things they're not saying. I mean, this is part of what I do for a living. But uh, it's such so second nature to me that I can enjoy the person and I can read the person inside and out at the same time. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes sense to me. And, and Ernest, thank you so much for your call. But Kat, something else that I want to sort of piggyback on, and I'm certainly by no means a relationship expert, but I think that a lot of people have in their minds who is right for them. They want someone who has blonde hair. They want you know blue eyes. They want someone who's tall, whatever the case is. And in doing that, that really closes you off to the person who may actually be your soulmate because you're not being open to the possibility that the person that you're meant for is someone other than your ideal sort of uh, you know person in your head. Right. I think that that just comes with emotional intelligence and maturing in your emotions because when we're young, we do do that. We go, oh, I love blondes. You hear, what's my type? People say that all mm-hmm. the time. And, you know, as you get older and you want to get away from the nonsense and, and the drama and chaos that people put you through and can put you through if you're not careful, and, and may I add, we put ourselves through, we put ourselves in harm's way. One of the things I say I'm, when I write affirmations for people that come to me to, to, to do this work is um, I, I write an affirmation at the very end of the affirmation. The last thing that they say every single day to themselves is, I never harm myself in any way. Okay, now what does that mean? It means that you don't put yourself with people that don't treat you well, you don't overeat, you, don't, you know, harming yourself is... It covers so many things, harming yourself so that you don't feel good about who you are. When you do things that you know make you feel not good about who you are, you're harming yourself. So, yes, as we get more mature emotionally, we go, oh, you know what, I'll tell you, what I really want, what I really want is someone that treats me like a princess. <clears throat> because, you know, in fact, you are God's 
you know, child. You are a son or daughter of the Most High God. Therefore, you are the king's daughter or son. Therefore, you are a prince or a princess. Now, how should that person be treated? You know, fantastic is what I say. You should be treated beautifully. You should be respected. You should feel good about yourself and who you are with that person. And... um and so what happens is as you get older or you get your ass kicked a few times out there with um, <laughs> in life and relationships, you begin to say, oh, you know what? I really want someone that makes me feel good when I'm with them. And when they're with me, we feel good together. They don't joke around and say things in jest that hurt my feelings and then say, oh, I was just kidding. You know, all the things people do to sabotage your self-esteem. So, yeah, I think, you know, you, you have to, you, you know, it's important to not get hung up on the look thing because that can be so deceiving. And how many times, Dan, have you met somebody, and all of you listening, you meet somebody and they are just, like, drop-dead gorgeous, and, and inside of five or ten minutes of talking to them, their looks start fading by the second. And then you meet people that are more plain-looking, aren't, you know, trying so hard, maybe just ordinary in some people's eyes. But when they talk, they become more beautiful by the minute because of who Definitely. they are. So, yeah, I think we should remain open to that. Well, while we're talking about remaining open to things, there is something that you are now known for that maybe some people are skeptical of. I'm talking mm-hmm. about your hypnosis show. So yeah. let's start off with the basic of what is hypnosis? Because I'm sure that you're aware there are some people who think that it's maybe just hocus-pocus or it's make-believe and it's not a real thing, but it is. Yes, uh, it is real. It is um, incredible. It's wonderful. It is the word that scares people. Hypnosis is just a word. It means sleep in Greek. So really what hypnosis is is not deep sleep. It is a very focused awareness. And what happens is when... When I, when, when I do hypnosis on stage, it's a different kind of hypnosis than, say, I would do in a clinical setting because I'm a clinical hypnotherapist as well. It's two different ways of working. Now, when I'm on stage, which I will be all this summer starting this week, and when I'm doing that, what I'm doing is I'm taking 30 people. I'm going to take them and I'm going to focus their awareness. I'm going to relax them down, focus their awareness, get them focused on me and the sound of my voice and the things I say so that they stop the chattering in their mind. They aren't hearing sounds in the room. They are focused only on me and the sound of my voice. And when that happens, then what they do is their conscious mind starts to shut down. And that's what we want because the subconscious mind is the back of your mind, the creative part of your mind. That is wide awake 24-7. It records every single thing you've ever heard, everything you've ever experienced, every single thing you've ever felt. So that part of your mind is who I want to play with because it's childlike by nature. It doesn't know truth from, uh, from lies. doesn't know real from fake. It's just a fact machine. So when I make a suggestion to somebody that's in hypnosis, they hear me. They're they're in hypnosis. They are, but their conscious mind is asleep. Their subconscious mind is awake, and I am giving suggestions to the subconscious mind. Now, generally, what happens is that the people will say to you, they'll say, "Well, what was it like?" You know, and, and I know what it's like, and this is what they will say. They'll say, "It is like I hear everything she says. She says do this. I." I had to do it. I couldn't help myself. 
they open their eyes. They're, uh, you know, for the whole show, their eyes are open just about. And they see people. They know there's an audience. They just don't bother to think about why they're there. So that's why there's no fear. There's no, you know, there's no, no one's worried about what anybody thinks. And so they, they feel really free to just do anything and, and that I tell them to do. And, of course, I'm never going to tell anybody to do anything that's, you know, going to humiliate them for life or damage them or anything like that. My shows are pretty um, safe that way. But um, in a therapy setting, it's the same thing. And all I'm doing is undoing the things that you have told me that, you know, when I interview people and they tell me the things that um, that they want to change, and then I quickly can get them to tell me where this came from. Then when we go into hypnosis and I refocus their um, conscious and subconscious mind so that they don't have the fears anymore, so that they can lose the weight, so that they can stop smoking, so they can stop being afraid to fly or whatever it is that they want to change. So it's it's really an amazing feeling. There's nothing like it. You feel like you've had eight hours of sleep in one hour. It's an art and a science, and the mind is an amazing thing. And so people that are willing to look into hypnosis, hypnotherapy, or even get up and do hypnosis on a stage, you can have a life-changing experience from it without question. I've had the opportunity personally to see your your stage performance, and it's you saw it's, my very first show. <laughs> I believe that is in New York. I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so since then, I mean, you've really been crisscrossing the country, and you mentioned that you're pretty much starting a, a summer-long, it's not quite summer, I wish the weather-wise it were summer-long, but you're starting a, <laughs> a, another big set of tours starting coming up next Friday, a week from today, here in Pennsylvania. But where are some of your stops so people can get excited and, and know that you, they're going to be able to come out and see you in person? Oh, yeah, I would love to have people come out. Well, I did 224 shows last year, so I was, it was a crazy time. I'm, believe it or not, I've got a lot of dates coming up this year, but I'm (laughs) cutting that in half because we started a production company. We have three shows in production, and I've developed two of them. So, you know, I I really want to be home more, but I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing because I love doing my hypnosis stage show. But... Um, let's see, I'll be in Anvil, Cleona, Pennsylvania. I'm doing one show there. Um, it's to raise money at a, for a charity at a high school, which I love doing because we have usually eight or 900 seats in a theater at a high school. And so much fun. Kids are amazing subjects. <laughs> and we raise a lot of money, so I love that. So uh, February 22nd, which is next Friday night, we're going to be doing um, our show in Anvil, Cleona, Pennsylvania. Um, and people are coming from as far as Brooklyn, New York, to come to that show, so it's really wow. fun. Uh, I'm also going to be in Texas in March at the um, Rio Grande uh, for, let's see, it looks like I'm going to be there for 8, 17 days, it looks like. Wow. No, sorry, 10 days. And that's in Mercedes, Texas. And then at end of April, El Campo, Texas, which is outside of Houston. I'm doing five nights there. Delaware State Fair in July. That's going to be uh, eight nights. Incredible uh, Delaware State Fair in Harrington. After that, immediately after that, Ohio State Fair in Columbus, Ohio. I'm doing six nights there. And West Virginia State Fair follows that in Lewisburg, West Virginia. And I'm going to be there for about eight nights. 
So <clears throat> that's the first half of the tour, and the second half I'll know. But I'm going to post all this on my Facebook page. If you haven't been to my Facebook page, it's now open. So it's, um, you know, you can find me on Facebook and also Twitter at Cat Hickland. I'll be putting all these dates there, and you should come if you can. Oh, one just got, sorry, one just got added. Freedom <laughs> Fest in New Jersey. Freedom Fest, Freedom Festival in Allentown, New Jersey. And that is going to be um, in July as well, July um, 9th through the 14th. So that's going to be fun because we have a lot of really big um, fans in that area. So I'll be putting all this on my Facebook page. But that's a lot of shows because I'm doing two and three shows a night at these venues. And, of course, they can also get official information on your website as well. Let's give them the address oh, for your right. website. I forgot I have a website, katherinehicklin.com. <laughs> yes, Easy I, to find. Uh, Easy to find or catcosmetics.com, my, my company, yeah. So either one of those you can find my tour dates. So I'm, I'm looking. We have only about uh, three minutes. I don't know where the time goes in this show. Yeah. So we have three minutes. I'm going to give it to you. And for three minutes... You can say whatever you'd like to <laughs> to your fans. Let them know, you know that you're thinking about them or, or give them other information. I will, and then you'll come in and let me know when it's done. <laughs> I will. <laughs> okay, great. Um, first of all, for all of you who are listening, you're so special and so um, loyal and, and so loving, and I really cannot begin to tell you how much I just love hearing from everybody. And what I love about this social media networking is that on Facebook and Twitter, we aren't just... You know, we aren't just names anymore. We see faces. We feel feelings. We pray for each other. We laugh together. We, you know, we dish together. Every day, you know, I go on and I say how I'm feeling about this Jody Arias trial. And, you know, and it's just so fun to be able to put something out there. And then I see your face pop up on my Facebook or my Twitter. And I say, oh, there you are. Because I know every one of you. And, and I, I feel like I do. So when I'm out on the road and when I'm appearing all over the country when I do what I do, nothing makes me happier than when people walk up to me and introduce themselves to me. And I usually don't let them get their name out. I look at their face and I say, I know you, and I say their name for them because that's how well I know you. And I'm so honored to have had all of the years that I did on daytime so that I could make all these great friends. You're more than just a little face and a picture to me. And um, you matter. And uh, I am so proud of all of you who, who have managed to get One Life to Live and all my children back up on the air because it's only because of you that that whole thing is happening and that I see them going into production and I think, look what you did. Look what you've done. You have undone what uh, you know some horrible man <laughs> he uh, he did something that was a huge mistake and you have undone that you are re you are making that happen for people again who want to see these shows so if anyone ever important. says you don't matter you surely do and that's all i have to say i love you madly I think that that's important to let people know that they matter. I want to thank you, Kat, certainly for dropping by the show. It's always fun to have you here. Hopefully it won't be two years until we have you back. Hey, you know, all you have to do is call me because you know I love being with you, Dan Kroll. I love having you here, and hopefully I will be able to. You're going to be in the area 
in the Philadelphia area. There's a whole bunch of different spots. Hopefully, we'll be able to connect together in person. Of course, I also want to thank Scott Sickles for dropping by in the last half of the show. Uh, his play, Lightning from Heaven, is playing right now in New York City through March 9th. You can also check out his work weekdays on ABC's General Hospital. And, of course, Kat, we gave your website address as well, but we're going to give it again. It's katherinehicklin.com. They can find you on Twitter, at Kat Hickland. If you miss any of this information, though, don't worry. It's not lost in cyberspace forever. We're going to have the information on our Twitter feed, at Soap Central Live. We're also going to have it on our official show page. It's soapcentral.com slash radio. If you missed any part of today's show, you want to listen to Scott's explanation of how soap ideas come to the screen or anything else, head over to SoapCentral.com slash radio. You can also download any of our past shows, including Kat's appearance way back in 2011. We're going to be back here next week, Friday, February 22nd, for an hour of your calls. It's all about the fans. We'll be playing calls from our caller feedback line. It's Friday, February 22nd, live at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. I hope that you'll join me then for another edition of Soap Central Live. Have a great week, everybody. Join us next time for the continuing story of all your favorite soaps. Tune in next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of Soap Central Live on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 